This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Republicans laundering Russian disinformation again. The lies and vapor underneath the Hunter Biden put-up job I'm Matt Robeson. This is Beyond Politics. We're broadcast on WKXL Radio. We're available wherever you get your podcasts, if you're into audio podcasts. And if you like to catch all of this kind of stuff on video, we're up on YouTube on the Blue Amp channel. We hope you'll subscribe there. We've got all kinds of fascinating analysis, content, and insider reporting information like we're getting today with our expert return guest, Lindsay Beierstein. She covers legal affairs, healthcare, and politics for an outstanding publication called The Editorial Board, also on Alternet, Raw Story, all over the place. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker. She's a judge for the Sidney Hillman Foundation. And Lindsay, you've done one of the best analyses I've seen of the crazy backstory that is the Hunter Biden story. Welcome back to Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's always a pleasure. You do these great, it's sort of a mix of like reporting and you pull together sources and other analyses and you kind of cut through everything and give it like a clear easy to digest container. And I really appreciate that. You're really good at doing that with like these sorted sagas. We we did this around the Andrew Cuomo mess. And now you've done a really great analysis on this about the Hunter Biden saga. So let's just give people a preview of what we're going to get into. You titled your piece, the first piece you did too, House Republicans poised to launder Russian disinformation again. It seems like what you're seeing in this whole story, just kind of bottom line up front, is you've looked closely at this. And in everything around the Hunter Biden story, you're seeing a combination of Russian disinformation, right-wing cover for Trump, and total vapor from Elon Musk. Is that right? That about sums it up. The reason that Twitter pumped the brakes on the story back in October of 2020 was because it contained all the hallmarks of a Russian intelligence hack and leak operation, like the one they pulled on the DNC. And they were really concerned about a rerun of that because they'd had ample warnings to look out not only for a hack and leak operation, but for one starring Hunter Biden and one linked to a president linked to a presidential campaign. So Twitter all by itself chose to pump the brakes on this story because they had every reason to think that it was a Russian dirty trick with the collusion of the Trump campaign. We don't know that. We may never know the full story, but there was nothing negligent about what Twitter did. They were applying their own terms of service, their own trust and safety guidelines based on the best information that was available to them at the time. And when you stand back and look at the whole thing, it still does bear all the marks of a Russian disinformation operation. And we can talk more about why that is in a bit. Well, I think that's super important to the story. And I want to get into this and I wanted to ask you kind of that bottom line up front first, because I think it guides a lot of what we're about to see. We're recording this in December of 2022. No crystal ball in the future here, but I'll bet you we're going to hear a lot about this story through the courtesy of Republican-led hearings in the House of Representatives once they take control next year. And so 
I think understanding this, as much as Democrats are reluctant to get into it because they just feel on the surface of it, it's like, boy, getting giving in to making this a story, giving it more attention is sort of letting the Republicans win. I agree with that. But since they're going to drag us there, understanding why, why it's so likely to be Russian disinformation, why there's so much vapor going on here, why this is all just insinuation and innuendo, what a former boss of mine in Congress like to call insinuendo, I think is really important. So so let's get into it. Could you first refresh us just a little bit on what is sort of the ba- sorted backstory here? Like what happened with this laptop? Okay, so long ago and far away in a magical land known as Delaware, <laughs> there's there used to be a Mac repair shop owned by a guy called John Paul MacIsaac, who is, these are both very important things. He's A, legally blind, and B, a frothing conspiracy theorist. And somehow John Paul MacIsaac got hold of, he says it's because Hunter Biden dropped off, a, or somebody that he thinks could have been Hunter Biden dropped off this laptop, set of laptops actually for data recovery, and that he started recovering the data from this laptop back in 2019, and he allegedly found stuff that he thought might be evidence of a crime, so he gave it to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, as you do, and eventually <laughs> the FBI came and subpoenaed the laptop and he handed it over to them, and then he says he was mad because the FBI didn't use all the glorious treasures from this laptop in the impeachment proceedings. So he decided to go public with it through through Rudy Giuliani. It's kind of a complicated timeline. It doesn't really make any sense. I mean, the procedural stuff doesn't really line up with what he says he gave to whom and why, which is another reason to be really skeptical about this. But that's the basic idea was that this it all came to public attention in October of 2020. So just about three weeks out from the general maybe a little more and sort of maybe a little less. And so it was the October surprise that the Republicans had been teasing, like Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon had been out there on their podcasting. We've got an October surprise. We're going to drop it any day now. It's going to blow everything out of the water. So there was every reason to be concerned about what the contents of the story was going to be. And so the New York Post came forward with it after the Wall Street Journal and Fox News and every other report, every other reputable news organization, even on the right, refused to touch this thing because it stank so badly. And Rudy Giuliani was pointedly not letting anybody else see this, not letting anybody else see this disc image of the laptop. The actual laptop itself was in the custody of the FBI this by this point. So they had like one guy who was the president's dirty main dirty tricks man in the in Ukraine who was prefer who's proffering this his disk image of a laptop that wasn't allowed to be authenticated by anybody else and rubbing his hands gleefully and bragging about how the New York Post will print anything. And given the historical context that we'd lived through, given the Mueller report and the DNC hack and the impeach Trump's first impeachment, which was also about trying to strong arm Ukraine into launching a fake investigation into Hunter Biden. Given that whole historical context and additional layers of context about all the other ways Russians have used hack and leak operations in the past from the World Anti-Doping Agency, chemical weapons researchers, George Soros, you name it, they've done it so many times. It's their stock and trade. It's incredibly effective for them to hack these things and leak them with a cover story. And the laptop looked for all the world like the cover story for some other kind of hack, maybe an iCloud attack, for example, because we know that Hunter Biden had a lot of his data on the cloud. Right. So let me just, first of all, give a little public service announcement here. Everything here, to quote a few good men, is very real and it, it, the facts are not in dispute. 
I think is the upshot here. But just to be complete, you provide all your receipts in your article. And again, people can look that up. It's on the editorial board. The publication is called The Editorial Board. And your article is called House Republicans Poised to Launder Russian Disinformation Again. People can Google this. All the links are there to all of the reporting. In addition, if you're super duper motivated, I mean, like I said before, you give the clear synopsis, the stuff that people really need to know version of this. But there was a whole deep dive provided by Andrew Rice and Olivia Nuzzi in, I'm mispronouncing her name, Nuzzi, in New York Magazine called The Sordid Saga of Hunter Biden's Laptop. Everything you just described is also verified in exhaustive, it will take you an hour to read detail there. So the point is, once we get into these hearings in Congress, all of this backstory is available. It's Republicans are going to go into this knowing that this is the shoddiest, shakiest backstory possibly imaginable. And just to review what you just said, you've got a right-wing conspiracy theorist who is legally blind, who says that he thinks that Hunter Biden came in and dropped off a laptop. And he can't verify that for sure. And he, as you say, his instinct here is, I've got to get this stuff to Rudy Giuliani. And what's really critical in all of this is when we talk about the Hunter Biden laptop, it's actually not a laptop. In the story, what you just said, this guy, John Paul Ringo and George, I think is his name. Turns I just think up, that was the Tamashanter man. Right. He sounds like the drummer for Led Zeppelin. So he turned, he calls the FBI and he says, look, there's this thing and I, like it's weird and it's, it involves Hunter Biden. And so they show up, they take the actual laptop. So at this point, what we're talking about is a copy of a copy of maybe a laptop that might have belonged to a shape that looks like Hunter Biden and on which there was information, much of which was stored in the cloud that could have easily been hacked into. I mean, Hunter Biden was, he had a substance abuse problem. He was on drugs. How much password security did the man have? So this was already a vulnerable data source. And so there are all these layers of, we don't know what came from where. So, I mean, does that about sum it up? It's like, you've got something and some of it seems to be tied to Hunter Biden, but we don't know how much of it is real. Exactly. And the thing to remember about how hack and leaks work is that they work by, in general, being real, in general, having been produced by the victim. And they dump them out there to start to get their partisans generating narratives about these things that are generally real. So what happened was the real public opinion kind of turned on the story once media outlets were able to authenticate some aspects of this huge cache of data. And people didn't have the digital literacy to say, wait, that people jumped to with the urging of Republicans, the idea, well, this vindicates it. Twitter was wrong. It can't have been, it can't have been a dirty trick. It must be real. But the truth is what you would expect from a hack and leak is a large body of real data that has been stolen because, you know, they steal it because it's real and it's compelling because it's real. 
That said, you don't know that everything in that cache is real. The independent analyses that they've done so far have said it's a forensic nightmare. We can only authenticate so much of this stuff. Well, there's a huge trove of stuff that isn't authenticatable through our cryptographic signatures and all that stuff. Can and we just so give people a sense of the scale? There, there was 217 gigabytes of data. And according to the Washington Post, they were only able to verify a very small fraction of them. There were nearly 129,000 emails, and most of them could not be verified in any way by either of the two security experts who reviewed that data because there was missing data or it was just not at this point. It was like so many loose ends had been introduced. So what you're talking about here is you put out a small amount of real stuff, and that sort of paves the credibility pathway for who knows what. Exactly. It creates this kind of glide path. And because there's been some authentication, then the Republicans are urging people to jump to the conclusion, well, it's all real. And more importantly, that the cover story, the story, I mean, it's it could be cover, it could be real, but the story is real and not a cover story, that the provenance, it really did come from this weirdo in Delaware and not a GRU hack and leak team. Right. And you point out that the weirdo in Delaware, John, Paul, George, Mac, Isaac, whatever, he can't keep his story straight. He's actually changed his story. So it's like worse than the fact that he's a right-wing conspiracy theorist and he's like proud of that. And that he's blind, not dissing on people who are visually impaired, just pointing out a relevant fact here. So in addition to that, he's changed his story. He has, and he had this bizarre meltdown with the Daily Beast. That was my favorite interview with him in October of 2020, where he just kind of freaks out and says, they're all coming to get me. And like, this guy is not a reliable narrator in any way, shape or form. Right. And the other thing that I think people also have to separate out is the idea of this possibly being stolen data simply from him and Rudy Giuliani. Like people have let it go unpassed their allegation that he legally owns this data and he had every right to send it to the president's lawyer. I mean, he was entrusted with this data from somebody, if indeed that's true. And he had this responsibility and he's claiming, well, it was abandoned and therefore it's legally mine. And Delaware does have a statute about abandoned property, but there's a very specific time limit attached to that. And from my reading of the statute, I'm trying to, if anybody's a lawyer from Delaware who studies abandoned property law, practices, abandoned, please hit me up. I would like to talk to you more about this. But my reading of the law is that there's some, that there's a whole legal process that goes into the public record. If you've got some property that you want to get title to, like you have to go to the court and explain to them why it proved that it's been abandoned, that you've done all the things you need to do to get it back to its rightful owner and to be assured that there's not a lien on it and it's not involved in a divorce settlement of the original owner and all this other stuff because, you know, it's property and those I's have to be dotted and those T's have to be crossed in order for it to be a real legal transfer. And it gets more complicated about reporting it to the FBI. I mean, maybe you always have the obligation to do that, to actually go to law enforcement if you suspect a crime. But in terms of taking data that was entrusted to you for money and then turning it over to the president's personal lawyer during an election campaign, I mean, there are real legal questions about whether that was the hack and leak in itself and maybe the Russians weren't even involved. All right, but let's talk about, because you make, it's not so much that you're making a case. You just lay out undisputed facts very clearly about why people were right to be suspicious. There are several key factors that, that you lay out in the article about why the whole context of this 
stank so much. One of them is that over 50 retired intelligence professionals signed a letter arguing that this entire setup looks to them with their practice professional eye like a Russian disinformation campaign. This is, as you alluded to earlier, what Russia does. It's so classic. It's like a dead giveaway. Anything more you want to add to that? I mean, that this is the assessment of intelligence professionals? Yeah, I mean, it really just is. It just had all the marks of a hack and leak operation. And Russia is so notorious for doing this. And they've had such success with doing it. And in the historical context of 2020, we were all living with the hangover of 2016, when they clearly did hack and leak the DNC. They did that exact thing to us. And it's illustrative when you actually look at the circumstances of the DNC. Like, what kind of cover stories do they use? Well, back in the day, they used the cover story of, oh, we're a collective of benevolent hackers and not the GRU at all. No. Right, 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 right. And so, okay, so that's point number one. Point number two that you raise, and I had forgotten all of this if I'd ever heard it before, is that data from Hunter Biden's computer were already on the market for sale in Kiev around the time that Rudy Giuliani was going on his fishing expedition to try and dig up dirt. Remember, there was a whole impeachment about this. These facts are not in dispute. Rudy Giuliani goes to try and dig dirt involving Ukraine and Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. He physically goes to Ukraine to try and do this. This data from the laptop is already for sale on the market in Kyiv. And lo and behold, it ends up in the hands of Rudy Giuliani, apparently through this weird Mac shop in Delaware. But what? Yeah, it just absolutely stinks. And we also know that the top levels of the U.S. intelligence community went to Trump and staged an intervention and said, hey, your boy, Rudy Giuliani, is off in Kiev huddling with people. He keeps coming up on our intercepts of known Russian agents, talking dirt with them. And you should just assume that everything he brings back is tainted by Russian intelligence. And those same agencies are working with the top folks at Twitter because they know that social media is ground zero of Vladimir Putin's personally off authorized election attacks like social media is the battlefield and so they're talking to the top people at all the social media social media platforms saying hey this is what the word on the street is this is what our sources are telling us watch out for a hunter biden hack and leak and just fascinating detail here again previewing the future by the time you listen to this future time dwellers this may be old hat because it will have been flogged by republican hearings over and over again What they're after is the Biden connection to Burisma, which is a Ukrainian energy company. And you just bring in this fascinating wrinkle that we know that Burisma was hacked by the Russian spy service in late 2019 at the exact same time. So again, just putting the data points together, every single piece of this in the chain of custody of this Data, is it even worth calling it this, is compromised by Russian intelligence. And it's just an absolute steaming pile of Russian mess. I think the summary of all of this is something you said to me off the air, but I think deserves to be said for all of our viewers and listeners, which is we can't prove definitively that this was Russian disinformation, but it Boy, is it suspicious. Boy, does it look like it. And 
any reporter, any journalistic operation, you have been an editor and a reporter, anyone with any shred of journalistic integrity or who worked for an American intelligence service would say, do not trust this. Do not, you, you've got to delouse this. This does not pass the smell test. Do not pass this on and feed into what is very likely a Russian disinformation campaign. Exactly. So, all right, let's add wrinkles because this isn't a confusing enough story to begin with. This comes to, so, so around October, 2020, apparently fed up with the fact that the bomb that they wanted to go off was not going off in the way they wanted it to. Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani start trying to push this story and this whole laptop saga on the media. First of all, Fox News turns it down. Fox News, known for their journalistic integrity, says, no, this is patently untrustworthy. We cannot verify this. This does not meet our journalistic standards. Oh my gosh. This does not meet Fox News' journalists. I mean, we could just stop there. But then what happens, and correct me if I'm missing some of this, they go to the New York Post. You already alluded to the fact that they bragged that the New York Post, it's like Mikey, he'll eat anything, the old life serial campaign. The New York Post will print anything, except in this case, they wouldn't. The news division couldn't verify it. It didn't meet their journalistic standards. They turned it down. And so they shunted it over to the opinion section. Is that right? That's as I recall. Yes. And that many of the reporters who were assigned it wouldn't have, wouldn't put their names on it. That's how bad this thing was. Right. And so in the context of all of this, that we fell victim to a Russian hack and leak operation in 2016, very like this, we fell victim to the release of emails hacked from the DNC as an explicit cover operation to protect Donald Trump at the time of his Access Hollywood tape reveal to try to move focus elsewhere. We knew that this had happened before. We knew from American intelligence services under Donald Trump that this was going to be attempted again by Vladimir Putin. No reputable journalists or editors or news organizations would take this story. It had all the fingerprints all over it of another Russian operation. Into all of this comes Twitter. So you wrote a follow-up article to your first outstanding article called Hunter Biden and Elon Musk's Crowd-Pleasing Vaporware. Fantastic title. I also did a video analysis about this. Recently, in taking over Twitter, Elon Musk decided to leak internal company emails to Matt Taibbi, a kind of used to be a journalist of some reputation. Now he's sort of a substacker and a hired gun who is available to lend some thin layer of credibility to BS, essentially. So he leaks this stuff to Matt Taibbi. And it purports to tell the inside sorted saga of how Twitter refused to allow coverage of the New York Post story to gain any traction. And you reviewed all of this. What did you make of that? Was there some there there? 
not really. I mean, it's always fun and cool to see previously. I mean, this is why I got into investigative journalism, because I love to read people's documents that they don't know somebody was going to read. Like, that's fun and exciting. But when you actually get down to what's in them, it's entirely defensible. You've got Twitter's lawyers and their top, top trust and safety people saying, we can't verify any of this. We're really concerned that it's a hack and leak operation. We, it's, the eve of a, it's, an eve, it's the eve of an election. We kind of just want to slow it down. And it doesn't fall... Well, it did actually fall into some very clear terms of service violations because the photo in the New York Post showed email addresses and they had a rule against disseminating leaked data that conveyed personally identifying information. And it was just a slam dunk as to why this was not acceptable under Twitter's terms of use. So they're saying, but it is true, the real, I mean, what's interesting about these documents is it is the real concern was absolutely Russian intelligence. Right. Right. And so this has become a great excuse for the right wing to lose their ever loving minds over its censorship. What about the First Amendment? And so I think what Elon was looking for was sort of red catnip to hand over to Fox News and the Daily Caller and all these outlets. I guess that's what you could call it. A sewage pipe that is an outlet. That's essentially what you're getting here. But it is amazing to me how little there there was and how hard Matt Taibbi is straining in his Twitter thread about these insider emails, how hard he's straining to try to make them salacious, to try and make them interesting. They're dull as dishwater. So what you've got is a bunch of lawyers saying, hey, could we take a look at this? I'm not sure if this makes sense. And if you read the Twitter thread, which I'm sure you did, I did, I read it very closely, Taibi does this breathless kind of thing of like, there's this ghastly email. This is a word he uses, ghastly. Have you used the word ghastly in casual conversation recently? I haven't. I mean, I'm um, a huge nerd, so probably at some point, but. <laughs> ghastly. Yes. I, I Usually yeah. to do with emails. I mean, I was, maybe I was talking about an Agatha Maybe Christie like axe novel. murders, but not. Yeah, emails. axe murders are ghastly, gruesome. So anyway, you have this ghastly time again, tweet by tweet. If you look at it, it's like. You, you look at the actual underlying email and it's so benign. It's so anodyne. I could look for more synonyms here. There's just nothing there. That doesn't bother me that much. What bothers me is he also just lies about the content of what's going on. And I just did a video about this for Blue Amp. And I just, at the risk of recapping some of that, I just want to look at one piece of this. So what you what is revealed in this is there is outreach coming from Republicans and it's captured in these emails to Twitter. And what there and what Taibi says, I'm trying to make this less complicated and it's just it's hard to do, but Taibi says there's this huge inside thing going on. Republicans reach a nonpartisan research firm reaches out to Twitter and reveals that they met with 12 members of Congress who are aghast. There's ghastly again. They're stunned. There are going to be major consequences for Twitter because of their censorship. And then you start to unpack all of this. And every word in that Taibi sentence was distorted or lied. Lindsay, you are a reporter and you've been an editor you tell me, just jump in and tell me if you would fire a reporter 
who tried to pass these kinds of distortions by you, all right? So first of all, it's not a nonpartisan firm that did this outreach on Capitol Hill. It is a branch of the Federalist Society that did this outreach. The right-wing judicial activist and like conservative conspiracy group. It's the Federalist Society. That's This is a branch of theirs. Number two, the person who oversaw this is a man named Carl Zabo. You can't make this up. He looks like a Bond villain. And this guy teaches us the at the Antonin Scalia School of Law and is a right-wing conspiracy theory activist. Number three, again, not identifying any of this, trying to pass this off as, oh, this was just, just research happening on Capitol Hill. They never met with any members of Congress. They met with staffers. They met with nine Republican staffers and three Democratic staffers. They don't attribute any direct statements to them. Taibbi simply says they were all stunned and outraged by all of this, just kind of attributed to them. I used to be a former staffer. I was not a member of Congress. I can assure you there's a difference. All right, so Lindsay. And also, it just sort of comes down to like, who cares? Like, I, that would be the number one thing for me as an editor. Is, okay, so there are tons of firms with various connections who are going around meeting with members of Congress, and you can find eight members of Congress, even if this were true, who have opinion, like, who are they? Do they chair committees? Are they important? I mean, you can find a wide array of opinions in Congress about anything. Like, it doesn't, right. it doesn't Especially even rise to the level of concern. Well, who are these staffers? I mean, I used to be a chief of staff. That's sort of like the like the head of the staff for a member of Congress. I was also a legislative director. That's the head of everything going on, like actually on Capitol Hill. We also employ a lot of people who are like right out of college. They're 22. They answer the phones. They're great professionals. Like I've hired a bunch of them in my life. Many of them have gone on to stellar careers on and off the Hill, like uh, amazing professionals. But I could ask a bunch of 22-year-olds who answer the phone on Capitol Hill what their opinions about stuff, and I could get all kinds of things that I want to hear. So anyway, this is just one example. I take it that a reporter who brought you this and tried to pass it off as, we interviewed members of Congress, and you can expect serious congressional action on this, that anyone who brought you that would be drummed out of the profession. One would hope. I mean, I would certainly not consider it newsworthy. It's And it's just the whole tone of that thread is just fundamentally just dishonest dealing. And when you get right down to the substance of it, it's just so, again, it's vaporware. It's self-promotion. It's marketing. It works a lot the same way as a hack and leak operation, honestly. Only this time it's been released by the head of the corporation rather than by an intelligence service. It's like, I'm going to put a whole bunch of text out into the street with the imprimatur that it's genuine. In this case, of course, it is. But... And, and then we'll just let we'll just let our partisans build narratives around it, and they can point to it and say, "Hey, it's real." Therefore, any crazy inference I want to throw out there is also real, which is of course not true and not valid. And like, you don't have to take this stuff seriously. Like, I think that's the big media literacy point that I want to hammer home for everyone, because we're going to live in an age where more and more of this happens, and we've got it happening with legitimate ways in which you obtain this legitimately, like FOIA. And you for there are a lot of activists who will FOIA stuff and then dump them with inflammatory context. We proved the lab leak theory. We proved this. We proved that. And I, what I want people to do is just take a step back and divorce in your mind the authenticity of the documents from the claims that these partisans are making about them. Because 
more often than not, the more inflammatory the claim, the bigger the gap if it's not an outright lie between the claim and the document support. Right. I think that's the, if there's a take home for people from all of this, it is the Hunter Biden laptop story in itself was very likely to be Russian disinformation. And if it wasn't, point number two, then reasonable people in law enforcement and in journalistic enterprises had every reason to fear that it might be and to act accordingly and to not run the risk of being dupes of Russian intelligence and affecting an American election, especially given the people involved. The Russians had already done this to us. Rudy Giuliani had already been caught up in the impeachment of a president for trying to do this. Steve Bannon was already caught up in actively trying to do this. These were the figures involved. And it was so obviously a partisan attempt to create, as you said a moment ago, an October surprise. And then finally, point number three, the decision by Twitter to limit circulation of this was entirely reasonable. It was the right thing to do. Now, later, they decided to do some damage control because they were taking incoming fire from the right, and they apologized. And they said, oh, our bad. We shouldn't have done that. Well, I don't agree with that. They should have done that, and they should have stuck to their guns. But yeah, And it didn't mean they had to do it forever. Like what they were saying, what Taivi actually revealed, if you look at those screenshots, is they're saying, well, we just want to slow this down. We just want to look at it and look into it a little bit more. And they did. And I mean, we don't have enough visibility to say what they actually learned and why they decided it was okay to take the ban off. But they went through their process. They said, we're going to slow this down. We're going to have a temporary ban. It wasn't an airtight ban. You could still talk about the story on Twitter. They weren't trying to completely shut down discussion. It certainly wasn't taken off the internet by anyone. It was just, you couldn't share that particular link. And then they revised it in the light of new evidence. And that's how you could, that's the only way you can ever do content moderation. Like you have to look at it in terms of, they're moderating a community of a billion users on the fly and it's going to be it's going to be messy it's going to be freewheeling it's going to be discursive behind the scenes and that there's no other way you could moderate content on that scale well i just want to point out a connection that whatever it, people will get it people who follow this will get it they'll remember it like it won't penetrate the general national consciousness but there's so much hypocrisy and irony in the way you just described this what did twitter executives do they said okay Let's slow things down for a little while. Let's take a close, let's make sure we're not falling into a Russian scam. Ultimately, the information got out there and it was able to be disseminated. Do you remember in the first impeachment what happened there? Donald Trump makes his call with Zelensky and he says, I need you to do us a favor though. And what was the exchange that he was offering there? We will send you money for arms, but first you need to dig up dirt on the Bidens for me. And what happened? Trump ordered that money get held. Now, what was the defense that Mick Mulvaney, the then White House chief of staff offered? He said, well, eventually the money flowed. Eventually we let the arms go through. Well, that's the exact same justification that Twitter is offering. He said, hey, 
we just put a slowdown, a pause on this temporarily while we could figure it all out. Well, apparently it's okay when Donald Trump does it. It's okay when he slows down needed support for an ally against Russian attack, which subsequent events have proven was sorely needed. That's fine. But Twitter executives can't limit information for a little while about a very likely Russian disinformation campaign. And for Twitter, it's their actual job. They are the trust and safety division. I mean, it's neither trustworthy or safe to let your platform become a playground for hostile foreign intelligence services. Right. And you point out this very interesting little wrinkle to this in your article that Matt Taibbi actually admits that Twitter executives blocked the New York Post story by themselves and that he himself could not find any evidence of any government involvement. This is not a case of like politics getting involved. This is not a case of the government getting involved. As a matter of fact, the government at that point was under Donald Trump. And so like th there's no suggestion anywhere here that this was somehow special treatment for Joe Biden. Now he tries to make one. He tries to say, well, you can look at political donations from people at Twitter and suggest that they're more of a democratic aligned company. No indication that those are the same people who are in the trust and safety division, right? No indication that like one has any to do with the other. It's an insinuation. And so, oh, you can also say, well, we have emails of the Biden campaign asking for certain pieces of content to be taken down. Aha! Well, first of all, there were also, which Taibbi admits, plenty of emails from the Trump campaign asking for things to be taken down. That's a normal function of campaigns to ask for distorted, biased, slanderous information or incorrect information to be taken down. They have a whole Other, political division with a its own Twitter handle that anybody who's running a campaign can at Twitter. You don't have to be even belonging to a major party. It's they operate all over the world. Like you could be running for city council in Malaysia, and somebody at Twitter on the political team will field your questions and comments. And indeed, Taibi admits that there's no indication that Twitter did so, prioritizing Biden over Trump. They fielded requests from Trump. They fielded requests from Biden. What were the requests from Biden specifically that he puts right into his darn thread? It's like he didn't even fact check himself. The links that the Biden campaign wanted taken down were nude photos of Hunter Biden. It would seem like those serve no purpose being in the public square other than to serve the prurient interest. It's sort of the definition of what the Supreme Court has said is there's no like First Amendment right to this. There's why more, it's just a clear violation of Twitter's own terms of service. This is a brainer. Even if you hate the person the dick is attached to, you're not allowed to post non-consensual dick pics on Twitter, whether it's your boyfriend, whether it's the president's son, it doesn't matter. It's against the terms of service. And anybody would have been entitled to write and ask for those to be taken down. And Twitter would be committed to removing them under its terms of service. It's not a judgment call. It's not anything. Yeah, it's, I mean, what I think it all boils down to ultimately is what you said a moment ago, which is, it always sounds great to say, we have previously unrevealed emails, we have, and you can call anything salacious, you can call anything scandalous, 
It doesn't make it true. And I just, no one's going to take the time to nerd out and read the Twitter thread and read the underlying emails you did and read the underlying screenshots that Tybee includes. But it's just, there's nothing there. There's nothing that's there. That's another thing that we should really emphasize is that these disk images have been out all over the internet for two years now, and they haven't found anything of substance on them. Right. There's, it's just a testament of a sad, sick man who is dying of addiction at that point. Right. There's nothing linking it to Joe Biden. There's nothing linking it to anything substantive in the public square. They're just trying to destroy the life of the president's son for political gain. And yeah, he's a sleazy guy. He was a desperate guy. He was literally dying of addiction. And if anybody's ever had an addict in their own family, they know that people will misuse your name, misuse access, misuse all kinds of things to feed their habit, to get money, to survive a little longer. And that's what Hunter Biden was going through at the time. It means nothing about whether anybody has given him permission to do any of that sleazy stuff. Well, I think that's a great note kind of as we as we head toward the close of the discussion. I it underlines the fact that it's not just that everything underlying the story is probably Russian disinformation and that we're falling, we're, that as you put it so brilliantly, Republicans are laundering Russian disinformation in an attempt to cover up for Trump and hurt Joe Biden for political purposes. It's the shamelessness and sort of the disgustingness of all of it that they're sort of taking advantage of Hunter Biden's really sad, tragic situation, but one in which there's no evidence that he did anything wrong. And as we record this, they're about to compound that by turning it into a set of national hearings. Again, we're recording this in December. I don't have a crystal ball, but I would bet that all this is coming. There is debate going on right now. There's good reporting on this within the White House between two camps about how to handle this. One argues that Hunter Biden should get aggressive about this. The Democrats should get aggressive about this. That the facts here are so obvious and that Republican motivations are so shameful that they should lean in basically to this whole story and how paper thin, how ugly it is, and that they should hang it around Republicans' necks. There's another camp that says that's ludicrous, that our best approach on this is, you know what? Hunter Biden is a private citizen who fell prey to substance abuse, to addiction, in partly in grief over the death of his brother. And that if we lean in, we're basically creating an excuse for Republicans to engage and that what he needs to do is disengage, stay the course of, don't say anything, let Republicans punch themselves out and reveal themselves as partisan hacks and essentially like a Russian laundromat. Based on your exhaustive review of all of this, where do you come down? What's the best approach for Democrats in the White House? Well, I think that Joe Biden's doing the right thing by staying above the fray and ignoring it. But I also think there's a role for surrogates to be out there reminding everyone that this is probably Russian. This is probably this could well be Russian disinformation or simply criminal activity on the part of Rudy Giuliani and Paul McIsaac, that they should be out there hitting people for that because it's disgusting. And also just pointing out how weird and purient the Republicans are, that they're just slavering over this laptop full of dick pics. It's not normal. Nobody else cares. It's, 
it reminds me of the attack on Paul Pelosi, where prominent Republicans were falling all over themselves to make fun of an 80-year-old man who got hit with a hammer to say that somehow, not just to victim blame him, but to bring in bigotry by saying, oh, there's something salacious involving his sexuality. I hesitate to even repeat it because you don't want to repeat the insanity. But of course, that's the whole point with this kind of thing is they say something outrageous because in pushing back against it, you repeat it and it reminds me of the old thing, a lie makes it halfway around the world before the truth has time to put its pants on. And did you and- see Elon Musk trying to paint Yoel Roth, his former head of trust and safety, as a pedophile? Like, Elon uh- Musk is organizing an e-pogrom, right, out in public, and it's just disgusting. Right. And so this all- Based why- on absolutely nothing. It's just a disgusting politics of personal destruction. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so I hesitated. The reason I wanted us to have this conversation here is that, like I said at the top of the show, I think it's important for people to arm themselves. I think it's important to get facts out because it's like inoculation. It's like, we've just lived through this for the last three years. Getting vaccinated works, people. And I want people to be forewarned, forearmed with the truth about just how transparently empty this whole thing is. And as you say, how prurient, how disgusting it is. And so I guess my advice, but you're you're really good at this kind of thing. My advice to people is, I want you to watch this video. I want you to share it. I want people to help get the truth into people's hands. But I also think that when it comes to the actual hearings that are coming to the actual attempt by Fox News to blow this up. Stay on target. Don't get sucked in. Like a little bit of the My Cousin Vinny defense of everything they just said is BS. And let's not get drawn aside from the fact that what you just said is the core of the story here, is that these people are disgusting. They excuse attacks on 80-year-old men. They excuse this kind of like, it's almost like revenge porn against a private citizen. They are very happy to launder Russian disinformation for political purposes, and they need to be called out and taken down for it. They're the ones who should be ashamed. And that's my take on it. What do you think? How should Democrats at large sort of handle the story? I think that's important is just to keep hitting them for what they're actually doing, for the viciousness, for the emptiness too. I mean, what does it say about this party that their entire domestic and foreign policy agenda is Hunter Biden's laptop? Exactly. And in more senses than one, and it, it kind of shamefully so. All right. On that note, I think we've given this as much air as we possibly can. Just remind people, if you really want to arm yourself with the facts, with the backstory here, you can find Lindsay Beierstein's work on the editorial board. You can look up the underlying articles that we've been talking about here. I want to give the exact titles for people's Googling purposes, although you can just rewind in the video. The first article is called House Republicans Poised to Launder Russian Disinfo Again. The second article is called Hunter Biden and Elon Musk's 
crowd-pleasing vaporware. You can find Lindsay's work all over the internet. You can also find that New York Magazine article about the Hunter Biden saga if you really want to nerd out on it. Lindsay, thanks so much for being back on Beyond Politics. Thanks for having me. It was super fun.